92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program features Carl Sagan and Andrewian with Charlie Rose on Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. It was recorded on September 20th, 1992, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank you. Uh, let, let me just, before I introduce Carl and Ann, let me just tell you a couple of things that, that'll surprise you. First of all, I just went through every New Yorker's nightmare. I, um, uh, <laughs> the traffic, exactly. What happened is that I was at my farm in North Carolina, and I'm going to give you more bio than you need to know, but I'll just tell you this because it's been traumatic for me for the last, for the last 24 hours. I, I was at the farm, and I got on my horse. I got about four or five horses there, no big deal, the quarter horses. And I, without a saddle, without a bridle, without a halter, without anything, and I was just sort of got up and, and was looking at the other horses. I just arrived at the farm, and something spooked this horse. And so he darted into the barn and, and just started bucking, and I got thrown against this uh, barn. I'm okay, no problem, except that I found out this morning I had broken my thumb. <laughs> a lot of sympathy. Well, what's, ama <laughs> what's amazing about this is all of a sudden you realize how valuable your thumb is. <laughs> I mean, try brushing your teeth when you can't use your thumb because it's so sensitive because try um, buttoning a shirt and, you know, all of those things and you realize that, boy, you know, how lucky you are never to have broken a bone and especially your thumb. So they put it in a little cast, and, and then I get, get back to the hotel, and I've got to take a shower. So you t I take that thing out, so I don't want to mess it up. And then I quickly come over here and leave the hotel, leave my, now you know why I live close to Channel 13, because of what happened to me. There is something called the Columbus Avenue Street Fair. <laughs> I left my apartment at about 7 o'clock. And we tried to find, I live over around 60th and right, right next to Channel 13. And I've been in traffic going crazy since then. And then finally we make it to 96th Street. And we're coming from 96th over here uh, through the park. And there's some stalled car. And I, and I heard the guys, we drove by saying to the cop and there's traffic all the way back saying, it just died on me. <laughs> Which is about the way I felt about my day. Uh, so... Uh, it is pleasing to see you here, and I know Susan is relieved, thinking that um, I might not ever show up. I cut it close frequently, but never this close, and so uh, I thank you for sharing this time with us, and uh, I'm pleased to introduce, <laughs> thank you. I'm pleased to introduce uh, Carl Sagan and Andrew, and they are, um, you know them from Cosmos, and Cosmos was a fascinating book and a fascinating television series, and it somehow helped us to understand where we were, where we are in, in some relationship to space and to time. They have now written another book uh, called Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, A Search for Who We Are. That's our exploration tonight. Please join me in welcoming Carl Sagan and Andrew. Yoon. Again, by A, first, thank you very much for, for sharing this time with us. Uh, 
what's the Odyssey? What's the uh, origins of this exploration for the two of you? Carl? Well, <coughs> it uh, has a strange history. Um, <coughs> in the uh, early 1980s, um, there was a... Uh, Can you hear okay? I'll talk louder. Oh, okay. <laughs> Takes me a little time to sort of get... Uh, Roused. Uh, uh, by, by another half hour from now, I'll be shouting. <laughs> In the early 80s, uh, there was a potentially fateful intersection between uh, the uh, political ambitions of the United States and the Soviet Union and uh, 60,000 nuclear weapons on the planet. And uh, at the same time, the resources being devoted to uh, the Cold War and the nuclear arms race were enormous and, uh, in our view, counterproductive. We saw, we saw $10 trillion spent on the Cold War, uh, for which you could buy everything in the United States except the land, I mean everything in the United States. We saw declining social justice, decaying infrastructure, we saw lots of problems connected with the, the pursuit of uh, nationalist interest, and of course, in the Soviet Union, still uh, more serious in the same direction. How did we get into this mess, Annie and I asked each other, and how can we get out? So we tried for our own understanding to, uh, to pursue this, and uh, you want to understand the Cold War and nationalism, then it goes back to the question of uh, the nature and origin of the nation-state that takes you to World War I, but nation-state goes much further back than that. Before you know it, there you are at the, uh, at the invention of agriculture and uh, the domestication of animals, because that's where modern political organizations came, but you're still not there. That is the culmination of a very long period, 99.9 percent .9 of our history as hunter-gatherers, and who we were as hunter-gatherers going back hundreds of thousands of years and more, depends upon where we came from. There was no spot along the way where we said, aha, here is the origin of our problems. This is the moment when it all happened. Instead, <coughs> it reached into the remote past, into a time when our ancestors were not yet human. And so by these slow steps, no boundaries ever being encountered, we found ourselves drawn back to uh, deep time, to the most ancient part of our history. And our conclusion was, if you want to understand who we are and how we got into this mess, you must look very deeply, very far back. The title, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, it seems obvious, but why this title? Why? Well, the central metaphor at the heart of the book is that the human species is a little bit like a baby in a basket, left naked in the basket, without a note saying who it is, where it came from, what attributes, what strengths, what problems it might have. And so, as Carl just mentioned, we set about trying to reconstruct that orphan's file, trying to understand who those ancestors, who are so much a part of who we are, but of, who, of whom we know so little. And so that's that's the title. Actually, we ripped it off a, uh, a wonderful uh, film by a man named Parajanov 
of about 25 years ago. But of course, there's nothing, no. the two have nothing in common except the title. And who are these ancestors? Well, they are manifold. They are the first one-celled creatures. They are uh, everything that came before us on this planet with, with special emphasis, of course, on primates. Both the primates that we hate to think of ourselves as being related to baboons, and also those, those wonderful primates, the gibbons and the macaques, who actually I'm very proud to have some relationship to. Why? Well, one of the great revelations in the course of researching this book was a study done by a man named uh, Masserman and his colleagues in 1964 about uh, macaques, who we, you may know them as rhesus monkeys. And these macaques were put in uh, a really horrendous situation. They were, they were given a reward of food in return for shocking other macaques. Who, who they could see, who, but who they, could not see them. Who they could see, <coughs> right. Now what was so remarkable was that Masserman and his colleagues found that regularly 60% of the macaques tested would rather go hungry than hurt another macaque. In one course, it was 87%. Furthermore, those macaques who had undergone this horrendous shocking were less likely to be willing to inflict this on their fellows. And, and what did that say to you? What? Well, we... Uh, <laughs> we About us. <laughs> we, couldn't, we, we couldn't help but ask, uh, suppose that uh, some humans were offered the same deal yeah. by macaque scientists, uh, how would we do? And we know the answer to that, because uh, similar experiments uh, have been done by uh, scientist named Stanley Milgram at uh, Yale. The only difference yeah, right. being, being that Milgram said when, when any of the human subjects had a little reluctance to right. turn the dial, said, oh, the responsibility is mine. And as soon as they heard those magic words, they were happy to turn the yeah, dial. You all remember, uh, there was 60 Minutes did a piece about this, many of you will remember. Uh, tell so, me so I mean, the there's a conclusion right. here, and that is that humans are by no means the only animals with what we might call ethics and morals, and that uh, they have not had the advantage of going to Sunday school. They have not heard about commandments and mountains and stone tablets. But somehow or other, they have an ethical sense which by some standards is better than ours. That's a very interesting fact. And what else did you find in terms of using that as just one example that suggested a proximity and a similarity well, as you began this exploration? Here's, here's another area which, uh, which boy, we, we found awfully exciting. Uh, and that has to do with not just tool use, but tool making. Maybe you know that uh, some of the greatest figures in, uh, in Western philosophy have said, ha, there are unbridgeable gaps between us and the other animals. We're way up here, they're way down there. Uh, the differences are not a matter of degree, you know, a little more of some trait, a little less of another, but a radical difference in kind. We have these traits, no other animal has these traits, and therefore we're terrific. Um, and tool using, and especially tool making, 
has been thought to be the key human characteristic, and surely our ability to, to uh, make tools is, is responsible for uh, the fact that we are the dominant species on the earth, that we're everywhere on the planet, that we're transforming the, the environment and all of that. It is fascinating to discover that chimpanzees in the wild, that is in, not in captivity, regularly both use and make tools. And uh, one, the, the, maybe the most famous case is termite fishing. There, there are termite mounds, they're maybe that high um, and that wide. And what the chimps do, uh, sort of routinely, it's you know, everyday business, uh, lots, of, lots of chimps, both sexes do it. They walk up to the, to the mound, rub away the coverings to the entrances into the termite mounds that the termites have covered up the previous night, go off somewhere maybe uh, meters away, find a reed or a stick, strip it of the, the leaves, push it in following the tortuosities in the, in the mound, hold it in for the right amount of time, pull it out carefully, a whole bunch of termites uh, attached to it, and then boom. And uh, <laughs> now that's a tool. Um, and how much it is a tool was proved by an anthropologist named uh, Geza Teleki, who spent months in Tanzania with a chimp tutor who was expert in this, whose name was Leaky, <laughs> and uh, named after the famous uh, uh, LSB Leakey. And Teleki, after months, could do none of this. He couldn't find where the mounds had been co covered over, where the holes had been covered over. There was no clue. You couldn't see it. He couldn't find the right kind of, uh, of reed. He couldn't strip it off in the right way. He couldn't insert it in such a way that it didn't sort of accordion up and was left with just this, <laughs> this bent reed with nothing attached to it. He couldn't pull it out so that he didn't scrape off all the, all the uh, termites. He couldn't do any of it. He was doing nothing. An accomplished anthropologist who was dedicated only to learning this technology. In months, he couldn't do it. <laughs> now, it takes chimps years to learn it. The, the, the little chimps, a avid pupils watching the parents do it. But uh, that says something about how far back tool using goes. And as you know, we were stone technologists as far back as we've been humans. Is what you were doing in this exploration asking, I mean, these kinds of stories and these kinds of findings were all out there, I assume. The researchers right. were working on them. Right. What you were doing differently were asking different questions or coming in with different, what? Perhaps. We were, looking, we were looking for a new perspective. We were saying that for the last couple of hundred years, science has been trying to reconstruct our past. But no one has put all of this together for a complete picture, a picture that would go back to the very origins of life and would tell our species the story of who we are, how we got to be this way. So in fact, while there are some, there's some wonderful anecdotes in the book, which have probably never appeared in a popular book before. And this is really our attempt at a synthesis of all of the findings, all of the relevant findings, to try to tell the whole story of life. And where do you end up is the essential difference uh, between 
man. We're still looking. Oh wait, watch, watch that man. Yeah, you know that was uh, what <laughs> Carl alluded to. <laughs> Carl alluded to earlier before all of the the incredible uh, I mean, pre preponderance of Western philosophers who would confidently pronounce they would say, "Man is the only animal that tells jokes." Man is the only animal, and each one of them had their own thing. It was always man, by the way. Right, right. I was. And it was almost like, well, <laughs> maybe man is the only animal that needs to keep telling himself that he is special. <laughs> you know, that's really what emerged. But maybe that's our distinction. Well, I was going to say before you interrupted, I was going to say between man and woman. But oh, I beg your pardon so in that case, Charlie. You, you I, I've done you a disservice. You did, and, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm still left with the question of where is the essential? As you began to say what we thought were distinctions do not exist. As you began to destroy and to look at findings suggested that myths were there, what did you find remained, though, as an essential difference between human well, kind? <laughs> um, let, let, let me just say a word about this, this man business. Of, okay. I mean, I, I grew up in, uh, in a society where everybody said the word man referred to both both sexes and what's the problem and uh, man and woman takes longer to say human takes longer to say what are all these complaints about but i think all you got to do is spend a second think and and, and it's not directed at you i, I recognize I, I shouldn't have picked up on that but i'm so sensitive about it i have a 10 year old daughter who helps right. me be sensitive on this just imagine yourself being a girl and 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 being told, when I say man, I mean all human beings, girls and women are incorporated into this word man. I would find that very depressing, I think. And we can make the effort to add one more syllable instead of saying man, say human. It's okay. And so I've been trying to, uh, sure. Good to you. train myself. You'll find, a, from my experience with this audience, you'll find a receptivity on that with this audience. Um, in, in my line of work, it, it comes up in the word manned space flight. Yes. But to, to answer your question, right. uh, to try, um, there is no quality, absolutely nothing, that is uniquely ours. Not art, not literature, not, well, literature, not art, not music, not language, not tool making, not ethics, not self awareness. There's not any of those things that are uniquely human in the sense that all humans throughout history have had it. Uh, writing doesn't count because for most of the history of humans on Earth, we didn't know how to write. Um, it can only be that we have more of some qualities than anyone else and less of some others. But that, of course, is a statement you can make about every species of life on Earth. There is a continuum. If you look at the genetic material, you know, the, the DNA language, written out in the, this four-letter language of nucleotides, you find that in the active genes, the ones that are working, there's a whole bunch that are asleep and never called upon, the chimps and us share 99.6% of the active genes. It's astonishing. The differences are tiny. Now, it's not to say that there aren't differences, and in any given case, uh, you know, if you claim, well, wait a minute, there's a special set of genes for language that chimps have and that humans don't. Nobody's found them, but it could be. It could be there's some special characteristics we don't have. If you ask us what, what is the key characteristic, 
it's probably intelligence because a continuum, a small change in intelligence can have a strong practical benefit which feeds on itself. And in the book, there's a place where we, we say, so is that all there is to it? Uh, give them a shave and a haircut, get them down from the trees at night, cancel the ads for ovulation, make their brains a little bigger and then they're indistinguishable from us. Is that all there is to it? And maybe, maybe. Were, were you surprised as you began to look at this evidence by the conclusions you were arriving at when you did this synthesis? Or were you also um, part of the, what might be called the conventional wisdom that there was a significant difference and, and it had to do with cognitive ability? Um, I was surprised at how hard it was to find uh, a radical difference in kind. Um, I, I, I'm not surprised to find that maybe intelligence is the key, the key thing, and I once wrote an earlier book, Dragons of Eden, which was right. along those, those lines. But yes, I was amazed to find that every one of the, I mean, we've only touched on, some, I don't know, 30, 40 different criteria that have been proudly hailed as the as something humans have and nobody else does, that it's not right, that it's a mistake, that everybody has some of them. What, what surprised me, well, two things surprised me. One was that because we come out of a, of a civilization that is based on the notion of a separate creation for human beings, that God created human beings in God's own image separately from the other creatures, I, I, I never realized before how pernicious an idea that is, actually. That feeling separate from nature, feeling separate from the fabric of nature, feeling that we have dominion over nature, enables us to destroy nature without realizing that we're destroying ourselves. And so I came away with a very strong conviction that this, this has had negative consequences for our, for our civilization. The other thing that surprised me was that uh, I haven't been able to look at anything that humans do in the same way. Watching the Republican convention <laughs> after, <laughs> after this, after writing well, this book. Well, all right, now wait a minute. <laughs> what, what, watching the Republican convention. It was stunning. What? And, well, I mean, first of all, seeing Patrick Buchanan. Now, <laughs> this was the Hamadryas baboon platform come to life. It was just amazing. <laughs> it was. It was. And, and what was so interesting was that as he was saying all of the angry and hateful things, homophobic, anti-female, racist, all of the things he was saying, the camera was panning the floor of the convention. And you would see these young white men. And they were giving pant hoots. They were going, whoo, 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 like this. In this way, it was like they knew what I knew. You know? They knew what the proper response to that speech was. What it, it, was, you know, it was really stirring. I could explain about some other television shows I know. Well, it's true. Oh, I'll it's say. true. I, I mean, by no means to confine this to Republicans, although, yeah. no, I, I, I don't, actually. <laughs> but what I think is so interesting is that when, uh, when people think in terms, when they allow themselves to think in terms of, of, of a Darwinian perspective, 
on human evolution. So often that perspective has been distorted because we live in a racist society and everything is distorted by that racism. What's interesting is how rarely that perspective has been applied to Buckingham Palace, to the White House, to all of our institutions. And I think that they are, it's just as applicable, actually, one as it is another. Let me come to the point you, you've touched on. Why do you think we all needed to have this in our own mind distinction? Why was there perhaps this notion of, of carefully and clearly drawing these boundaries? Was it religious? Was it anti-evolution? What was it? I'm, I'm going to let and Annie answer that, and then I'm going to pick up on it. All right. Say, well, no, I'm sorry. Uh, well, what was the resistance uh, 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 to Thanks a lot, Carl. What was <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just you, you, gave I'm such so a, sure. you gave such a great answer to the television <laughs> people at this you. very question 15 minutes ago. <laughs> that was 15 uh, <laughs> I beg your pardon. Why was there resistance to... Uh, understanding the similarities, uh, and well, was it religious, was it anti-evolution, was it uh, what? I think it's, there are many components to it. I, I think of what Charles Darwin said, and I'm quoting him roughly. He said, those animals which we torture and exploit, we don't like to think of as being related to us. There's a certain sense in which the way that we have achieved dominion on this planet has been as a result of of wiping out whole species. And today, we annihilated, or we were in some way involved in the annihilation of 100 species that will never be again. Many of them are so ancient as to, we, we, we could never even grasp how ancient they are. This DNA message traveling across billions of years, 100, 100 messages gone today, 100 tomorrow, and so forth. So I think part of it is a way, it, this is denial that enables us to conduct ourselves the way we do. But also, I think we have a kind of um, fear of being one with the animals, and this goes to our sexuality, to our, 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 our fear of, of recognizing ourselves as we really are. Um, well, I, I, I don't understand it completely. I, I think yeah. it's more complex complicated than we fully understand. But the reason I ask that also, and remember this, we're talking, and I, the reason I asked the beginning question about what led to the search is, is you really asked the question, why are the, we the way we are? And how do we get into the mess we're in? And how do we become to threaten the planet? And all those kinds of questions. And you then began the odyssey to say, who are we? We'll come back to that. But why the resistance to your looking at studies that suggested the similarities were greater than the differences? It casts an awkward light on many aspects of our society that we take for granted. Let me uh, give one example, and maybe we can go to others. Dominance hierarchies. A dominance hierarchy is where there is a, a rank order of who's in power, or the phrase we use, which is very uh, significant because it has literal meaning, who's on top, right? Top dog we talk about. We have a, we have a, we talk about underdog. Um, we, and, and the fact that we talk about dogs in that respect, the fact that we talk about uh, um, henpecked, about pecking order, that's, that's in, in domestic fowl, uh, our awareness of the existence of a uh, dominance hierarchy. And the way it works is there's a, a, an alpha male, it's customary to use the letters of the Greek alphabet, so the the top one is alpha, and the lowest one is omega, and 
in between, there's 22 more letters of the Greek alphabet that you can use. The alpha male um, requires deference, submission, respect. He gives a kind of social order. He uh, prevents, uh, for example, picking on the infants by uh, testosterone-addled young males. Um, he breaks up fights. He uh, leads opposition in uh, conflict with other groups. Uh, his uh, benefits are he has uh, dining and sexual privileges. Um, and uh, no female turns him down. 100% acceptance. Just delighted if an uh, alpha male looks at you and uh, the alpha male looks at every single female <laughs> in the group. So um, you can see what's in it for the alpha male, you can see what's in it for social stability, uh, and there's a hierarchy in between alpha and omega. Now, dissolve to corporate boardrooms, to, uh, to uh, the military rank hierarchy, private, corporal, sergeant, first, second lieutenant, first lieutenant, captain, all the way up to general of the army. Religious hierarchies, political hierarchies, urban and motorcycle gang hierarchies, hierarchies in Renaissance Italy that, uh, that Machiavelli described. Uh, suddenly, we see built into all aspects of, the, particularly of the male side of human society, transculturally, no, no culture is immune to this, dominance hierarchies with the same privileges for the alphas, the same sense that, well, maybe we lose something in, uh, in um, freedom and dignity, but we gain something in law and order. That's the balance that we, uh, we have to uh, uh, judge, and in many cases, it seems like a fine balance. People are perfectly happy to do that. Now, this strikes right at the heart of many of the major political issues uh, before us today in many countries. The battle is between those who like authoritarian dominance hierarchies and those who want them to go away. And they call, political parties call themselves by different names. But the, the, uh, the State of the Union address, especially when the president is riding high in the polls, the president strides down the center aisle of the House of Representatives and reaches out and touches the, uh, the representatives who put out their hands to get, to get just a momentary touch of the alpha male. It's exactly, exactly, no nuance left out what the chimps do. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd just like to uh, add something to, uh, in response to your question about why the resistance to this idea. We've taken a real beating over the last 400 years. You know, we once thought that we were at the center of our solar system and that the sun revol revolved around us. And that then we thought, well, we were at the center of the universe and we're no longer at the center of the universe. The revelations of the last several hundred years of science have served to dislocate us from our central place in the universe and from a belief in a kind of universe where 
there is someone watching over us and telling the fall of every sparrow and personally in involved in our affairs. This is just one additional extension of that displacement. We have to accept that we don't have that central place. For me personally, it's kind of a relief. And the universe doesn't become even a slightly less wonderful to me without having that central place. But, but many people feel this is a terrible cost. And I think believing that we are part of the fabric of life on Earth instead of the aristocracy of life on Earth is another, another painful realization. Do you think also, Carl, that this is leaping way ahead, that that is also part of the realization that's coming to us as Americans? That uh, we're not uh, that we king of the not, roost? Yes. Uh, that we have to adjust to a new world order, so to speak, without using those words, but adjust to a changing relationship, uh, both from an economic and a, uh, and a political I, I think that explains a great deal of what otherwise is the inexplicable and self-destructive American affair with Ronald Reagan is, is precisely that sense that he offered a respite from the idea that the United States' ability to kick other nations around was in the decline. That is, that the United States as alpha nation was on decline. Ronald Reagan said, no, no, we really are still alpha. And everybody wanted us to still be alpha because it's built into us. But then some would argue, and I, I want to come back to the subject of this book, but some would argue that the, de the decline and fall of communism in a sense uh, raised the stakes of the ability to kick people around. That in fact, uh, our excursion, in, I mean, uh, the Iraqi Persian Gulf War would not have taken place clearly if, if Iraq was the same client state of the Soviet Union. Because it would have brought two nuclear powers yes, into indeed. confrontation. I'm sure that's right. But on the other hand, it's also less likely, I believe, that Iraq would have attacked Kuwait. Because the Soviet Union would have restrained them? Because the Soviet Union would have restrained because them because, because of the danger of a, right. a confrontation with the United States, two nuclear powers. So it cuts, it cuts both ways. We'll come back to those things. And so I want to talk about the environment. I want to talk about a lot of other things. And more importantly, I want to get some of your questions. We'll do that in just a few minutes. Let me come back to the, what you found, and you touched on some of that in terms of male dominance. In terms of what gender differences and gender similarities come out of looking at uh, engaging in this exploration? Well, it's, uh, it's very complicated. First thing to be said, you know, there's 200 different species of primates, of, uh, of apes and monkeys, and there is an absolute, the broadest possible continuum of gender roles. So uh, uh, the gibbons who, uh, who are monogamous for life, who who sing duets, the, the, the male and the female, they spend a half an hour to an hour at sundown singing to each other. Um, yes. the, 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 there, there are monkeys in which, the, except for breastfeeding, the males take, take almost all the care of the babies and the females go off gallivanting. Uh, and there are, of course, the... the <laughs> <laughs> like that one. <laughs> I told you about this audience. <laughs> <laughs> and there is, of course, the Hamadryas baboons, which are just the other way. They have harems, the, the female in the harem who so much as looks at a male other than her supervisor uh, can get her head handed to her. Literally, she, you know those enormous fangs that the, the Hamadryas males have? They use them on females who do not instantly toe the line. Uh, 
So the conclusion just at that level of, of looking at it is that there's everything in us. If you know, we're most closely related to the, to the other primates, uh, we have all of that and the question is what mix. But we're most closely related to the chimps and the bonobos, yeah. um, so-called pygmy chimps. And so to whatever extent you can learn about us by looking at other primates, you've got to look at the chimps and the bonobos. And it has to be said that chimp society is not a feminist paradise. <laughs> chimp, chimp society is one where, where the males simply have a straightforward sexual domination. If the females don't like it, uh, they get punished for it. Uh, very straightforward. There's no elegance about the, the courtship. Uh, uh, you know, there, there are some, some restrictions on the language I feel comfortable about speaking in public. We don't have that same restriction in, in writing, but, but uh, it's, it's hard without using street language mm -hmm. to get across what sexual life among the chimps is like. I'm not going to do it, but uh, re re read the book and you'll get a fuller flavor. <laughs> do it, she said. <laughs> Tell me about... Uh, but, but, you, were gonna, you were asking about gender differences. Yes. And uh, among the bonobos, uh, females very often play a conciliatory role. They are peacemakers. And it's not unusual for a female bonobo to disarm an enraged male bonobo, even at some danger to herself, by reaching up and taking, prying the rock out of the fingers of the male bonobo. Um, also by using sex as a kind of peacemaking, uh, as, as a kind of soporific um, calming down mechanism. But in fact, when, when sociobiology and this whole way of looking at human society was, was first broached 20 years ago, there was a tremendous fear among women, myself among them, that because science had been so misused against women traditionally, because women had been so excluded from science, and because science was done by, was done by human beings who were self-aggrandizing and tended to look for ways in which it made them feel better, um, that, that this perspective would be another cudgel to hit women over the head with, you know, imagined differences in math scores or statesmanship. In fact, I think the overall picture is very different. It's the, the, the headline to me is that men have Males have raging hormonal imbalances. Testosterone constitutes a grave danger to our species and our, and our civilization. And that any civilization that would put the males entirely in charge and not have a kind of co-leadership of women and men together is one that's just looking for trouble and is, going to, is bound to be constantly plagued by the hideous violence which our planet is heir to all the time. I want to. St <laughs> um, if I can just say, it's especially dangerous if you couple that uh, unbalanced male political control with the existence of weapons of mass destruction. I mean, that is a prescription for disaster. You also say here that sex and passion are pre-programmed in us. What did you mean by that? that you don't have to go to school to learn much about. <laughs> I mean, 
I mean, there, there certainly is a learning yeah, experience. Line, in if ever. <laughs> <laughs> certainly is a learning experience in sex, but uh, but interest in the opposite sex is clearly built in. Yeah. Um, and for good reason, because if we had to figure out what's necessary so for, us for the to be next that generation, way is nothing new. Yeah, I mean, if it was up to us, uh, to our intellectual abilities to decide to propagate the species, there wouldn't be any of us left. Uh, um, <laughs> of course it has to be pre-programmed, and lots of other things are, are pre-programmed, and pre-programmed means written out in great detail in the, the language code. of the genetic code, the language right. of the DNA. Right. Uh, I want to take some questions in just a moment, but as you look to... Uh, I guess every talk show in America, whenever they've talked about evolution, always talks about somehow justifying it and, and, and how do you, what do you say to those people who uh, come to you with their own religious uh, interpretation of... Well, the, this is a quasi-religious organization, I, I, I understand, um, but, but let, let, me, let me not duck, duck the question. The science in the book of Genesis was state of the art in the sixth century BC. <laughs> That's when the Jews were in the Babylonian exile in Babylon. Babylon was the leading scientific nation on the planet. The people who wrote the book of Genesis wrote down the absolute latest findings in science. But we have learned something in the subsequent 2,600 years, and it would be foolish to say that this is the literal truth, as if, as if God was dictating to a flawless stenographer, uh, as if... Uh, as if God, if you want to believe the book of Genesis was dictated by God, would not use allegory and analogy to explain things to people in the 6th century BC. If you, if, you are, if you require that the book of Genesis is inerrant, is literally true, that there can be no deviation from it, then it's clearly dead wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. If you believe it is a poetical work, if you believe it uses metaphor and allegory, if you believe it is merely a codification of the best knowledge of the 6th century BC, then we have no problem. But people who ha say that evolution doesn't exist, it's invented by Charles Darwin and liberal college professors, or uh, it's, uh, it's an atheist scandal uh, invented to embarrass us, those people are simply having difficulty coming to grips with the absolutely clear-cut evidence across many different areas of science. Evolution is a fact, like it or not. Some people don't like it because they want to be at the center of the universe, and evolution says, sorry, you're just another species. Find your self-worth somewhere else. <laughs> well... You want to add to that, or you want to leave it there? Uh, I, yeah. Let me let me raise another question too. That, that before, right before I move to the audience, is this notion of um, as you looked at evolution, as you looked at where we are, and if you looked at when we began to do serious damage to ourselves and to, I mean, um, what happened? Why? That's actually volume two, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm off the hook. What happened? I mean, why are we in the state? Yes. Where 
Well, because we're, we don't fully understand who we are, and, uh, and we're not as wise as we are clever. Yeah. And what lessons, I mean, if you could pinpoint the lessons from this research and from this exploration that were most crucial to you, what would they be? They are that as long as we keep lying to ourselves about and mystifying the forces within us, we are going to go around and around in circles, and we're not going to sort these problems out. I think, for me, there's a tremendous relief in understanding how this works, even in my own personal life, why I'm doing certain things that enables me to look beyond them and to, to see that and to take a different perspective. I, I, would, I would say something like this. Here we are at a critical moment in human history when we're tinkering with social forms like mad. Um, after a long period in which change happened extremely slowly. Now, do we tinker at random? Do we tinker for the interests of those who are the alphas in the society? Or do we tinker in a way which is consonant with, resonant with, who we actually are, what our strengths and weaknesses are? I mean, the, a way to look at it is there is a wide range of predispositions in human beings. Society is kind of like a, a stencil that you place over it. And some of the predispositions come out, others are suppressed. Which ones do we want to come out? Which ones do we want to suppress? How much suppression can you do before you get into trouble? How much amplification can you do before you get into trouble? We discussed an experiment with the Hamadryas baboons in which they're all packed together in, in uh, very tight quarters and, and their social norms are tremendously deviated and then they all go crazy and kill each other. And people say, titch, titch, those baboons, they really are brutal. When the problem is that their natural kind of society was taken away from them. Mm -hmm. Isn't it important for us to understand the, how humans really are, what kind of society we're designed for, before we just go off making social policy? It seems to me that's an example in which these kinds of issues have the greatest practical relevance. Make a society that's consonant with human nature uh, and to do that, you have to know what human nature is, and to do that, you have to understand who our ancestors and collateral relatives are. Uh, let me make one last point, too, though. Would you, uh, and you're not arguing against this, it is that as I think about these subjects and think about extraordinary achievements uh, that humankind has made and the contribution that are sometimes overwhelming, uh, both in terms of intellectual capacity and then on the same time, despite all of the violence, in spite of all the sexual and racial discrimination and, and acts of, of obscenity, there is, you see, um, reflected in a variety of places, um, aspects of, of, of humankind being uh, rising to their best instincts. Some connection with um, that that we ought to be most proud about on the one hand our, our achievements and our progress, and on the other hand, um, our 
human qualities that say the best about us. Yeah, we're, we're, we have all sorts of contradictory things beating in the same breast. Uh, I mean, absolutely, here, here we are littering the planet with weapons of mass destruction. We're making some good progress, but still there's enough to destroy our global civilization many times over, depleting the ozone layer, tinkering with the climate, and at the same time, we're sending ships to the planets and the stars. At the same time, we're producing a kind of global unification, in part through technology, communications, transportation, technology, the, the interdependence economically, the binding up of the planet, and at the same time, ethnic, obscene ethnic violence and uh, appeals to the worst in us of the sort that Annie was referring to uh, in the context of Mr. Buchanan, all mixed up in us at, at the same time. And so the, the question I say again is, which ones we choose to elicit and which ones we choose to discourage. We have some control, those of us who, who uh, vote, who have something to say about the kind of society we live in, we have some control about which human qualities uh, we choose to amplify and we ought to do a better job of it in my view. If they'll pull up the, ha the, the house lights, we will uh, take some questions. I'll move over here and we'd love to take some questions from all of you and, and we begin with this fellow, this gentleman, yes sir. Step over here so I can see people. Okay, I, uh, you want me to repeat the question? Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I did. I'll repeat the question. Is there, uh, this is a question that probably Dr. Sagan has received, I suspect, as much as any question to ask of him. It is as to whether there is uh, human life somewhere else. Intelligent life. Intelligent human life somewhere else. And secondly, um, what was the second part? I forgot. Wait, wait. He, 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 did, he didn't say human. Okay. He didn't say human. It's very interesting that there's a tendency when we think of intelligent life to think to associate no, right. it with human, right? Could be completely different from humans. And the second question had to do with UFOs. Right. Well, is there intelligent life in the universe? I think it's an open question whether there's intelligent life in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> we do not know if there's life intelligent or extremely stupid, I'd, I'd settle for stupid, <laughs> anywhere else. If you ask me to guess, I would say that there are so many other planets that the building blocks of life, the organic chemicals from which life arose, are everywhere in the cosmos, that the evolutionary process is nothing about it that's, uh, that's unique to the Earth that uh, other things being equal, it's probably better to be smart than to be stupid. I mean, just in terms of selective advantage and competition with other species. For all those reasons, I think it's likely, not believe, but I think it's likely that uh, life and intelligence is a cosmic commonplace. But we do not know. We're using large radio telescopes to listen, to see if anyone's sending us signals. We have not gotten any unambiguous signals yet. Second half of your question has to do with UFOs, unidentified flying objects. I don't have any quarrel with people who see unidentified flying objects. Where I start having trouble is when they identify them. 
There's a lot that could be said about this, but, but let me just say, I mean, nobody would be happier than me if we're being visited. Think of how much trouble it would save me who has yeah. been spending so much time listening to signals and sending spacecraft to other planets. I'm for it. The evidence is absolutely crummy. Despite all the stuff that you read in the National Enquirer, <laughs> there is not a smidgen of hard evidence that we're being visited. Reflect for a second on um, what we are doing to establish contact with intelligent life wherever it might exist. Well, um, I mean, there's two things you can do. You can, uh, you can listen and you can send. Right. We are listening, uh, and uh, NASA will, on October 12th, uh, turn on what is by far the most uh, sophisticated listening um, system ever, ever devised by the human species. Um, about sending, scientists don't send. But you, Charlie Rose, you send. <laughs> because television I've gets been hearing out. from him too. <laughs> so you must imagine a set of spherical waves expanding at the speed of light away from the Earth, carrying with them all the dreary and occasionally excellent contents <laughs> of, of television, in the earliest days, mainly American. And so at the outskirts of this expanding wave of information on the existence of intelligent life on Earth is the programs of the, the late 40s. Uh, Howdy Doody, <laughs> Milton Berle, the Army McCarthy hearings, and other true reflections of life on Earth. So I often point to this when, uh, when people ask, if there's life everywhere, how come they haven't visited us? Now you know. <laughs> yeah, at the very back. Yes, ma'am. Evidence of homosexuality in other species. Absolutely commonplace. But, uh, but there's something which, uh, this is again on the you know, boundaries of decorousness, but I'm, I'm going to try to, to uh, say it without using offensive language. Let's go back to the, to the chimps, where the males have a bevy of compliant females, and if they're not compliant, too bad for them. They become compliant in short order. The invariable sexual posture in heterosexual copulation is uh, the male entering the female from behind. Now, since the males are dominant, and in this respect the female is submissive, this is a kind of gestural language of who's on top. I mean, in the most literal sense. Now, in the male dominance hierarchy, the most common way for an inferior to, um, to express his uh, deference to the superior is to adopt a female posture and invite the male to mount, the, the alpha male to mount him. There is no sex involved. 
It's not sexual. It's symbolic about dominance. But the early uh, scientists who saw chimps in, in the field in Victorian times were aghast at what they thought was rampant homosexuality, to say nothing about all the heterosexual contact. Uh, all the males were, were doing homosexual things all over all the time, is the way it looked. But in fact, it's a sexual metaphor to express who is where in the male dominance hierarchy. And uh, it's, uh, it's built into our language. Um, again, it's going to be awkward. The most common two-word sexually offensive phrase in English, you know what I mean. <laughs> Think about it. What does it, in fact, mean? What are we saying when we say it? Millions of times all over the planet people say those two words to each other when they're angry. What does it mean? I like you so much I, would, I want to have a love relationship with you? <laughs> Obviously not. This is in words, we claim, exactly what the chimps do in postural metaphor. I hope I haven't been too obtuse in this uh, description. You, you can get a more direct description of it in the book. But we also have our postural metaphors. Because when you see someone bowing to another person, what is that? That is exactly what the chimps are doing to each other. And uh, it's just a, a, an artifact, a, a, a leftover from, from that part of us. Right over here. Yes, sir. That's a great question. Uh, repeat it. Uh, repeat it, Carlo. I will go ahead. The questioner phrased it very nicely. Says, "How did those ethical concerns in the rhesus monkeys, who won't hurt each other even if they have to starve, how did they get inside of them? Where did the ethics come from? H have I paraphrased it okay?" And is it a rational thought? And is it rational thought? First, let me let, let me answer the rational part, and then Annie, maybe you want to do the how did the ethics no, you get can, in? Go ahead. <laughs> Chimps are rational in the same sense that humans are rational. I mean, we have a lot of irrational things in us, but occasionally you can find us doing rational things. Same with chimps. And to lesser extent, same for the whole phylogenetic tree. I mean, worms can run mazes. Are they rational? Well, I imagine most of the time worms don't have have thoughts that equal those of our best philosophers. But they must have some degree of rational thought if they can learn to thread a maze to get some food or uh, a worm of the opposite sex. How does ethics get in? I think it's probably something like this. Imagine two groups of monkeys, one, or, which have very complex social behavior and interaction, but they have slightly different genetic predispositions because biological mutations are random. And the environment selects out one constellation of mutations and rejects another. Suppose this bunch 
doesn't care about each other at all, and this bunch will go and make uh, considerable sacrifices for their close relatives. Which bunch, in the long run, is more likely to survive? You certainly can see environmental circumstances in which the monkeys who care about each other collectively survive better than the ones who don't. So that's all it is. It's natural selection working on social interactions. And uh, I claim that that is probably the origin of most human ethical predispositions as well. It goes all the way back. And it's not that we decided one day to be nice. It's that it's built into us and, and those early societies in which nobody cared for each other were all eaten up by the saber-toothed tigers or something. Now today we live in a very different kind of society in which very different demands are on us and, and natural selection is working in a very different way and it doesn't mean that any of the traits that, uh, that were good 100,000 years ago are optimized for today. Some might be, some might not. Sorry to give such a long answer, but that, that's the way I, I look yeah, at it. Um, I believe that, uh, that the human species has two sexes for a reason. Um, and that the reason is not just mechanical and biological. It has to do with the way societies work. If you look at, uh, at human hunter-gatherer societies, you find you find, you find lots of things. You find in many of them no rank hierarchies. You find democratic forms everywhere. You find the status of women very high, uh, even on such issues as where the men shall hunt, the females, and not just, I feel, dear, you ought to hunt to the west, but it's when we were out when we were out gathering today, we saw a herd of 31 elands and then a distribution of sexes and uh, you know, detailed technical information and they went that way at such and such a speed. If you hurry up tomorrow, you can catch up with them uh, and information greatly appreciated. Uh, and, and also the peacemaking qualities of females, the story that Annie told in the chimp context of the females disarming the males as they were gathering their stones. This is also something that females do widely uh, in humans as well. I'm a feminist, I'm a masculinist, or whatever the right, right word is. Humanist is the sum phrase. I think human beings have been successful because of various design features, design in quotation marks, and one of them is women playing a significant role. And I think we've gone far from that and and uh, in our politics, what would it be like if women played a role proportional to their numbers? I don't just mean an occasional highly masculinized female prime minister. <laughs> I mean, I mean legislatures that are 50% women. I mean uh, the joint chiefs of staff, half men, half women. 
What kind of a society would that be? I think it's important to think about whether that might not be an improvement over what we have. Okay. Men get a lot more honest when women are around. Uh, I've got to get a lot of people in here, but... Annie, did you want to add to that? Amen. All right, amen. <laughs> uh, right here, yes, sir. Why aren't we all like the self-sacrificing macaques? Because, sorry, any, Well, because there are circumstances in which, unfortunately, that militance and violence will uh, help us survive. And so there have been times when we were, I mean, if you get too highly specialized as a species, you're in trouble. Because, in fact, the more capabilities that you can maintain provided, of course, you can use them wisely, the better off you are in the long run. There are circumstances, and there have been in our evolution, when it was good that, uh, that the men were violent, actually, and could respond and could protect. Unfortunately, that's no longer the situation, and yet we still have so many people reacting as if it were. I mean, for, for example, we lived at a time when all we had to protect us against a vast array of carnivorous opponents was our ferocity and our intelligence. You survived if the guys were very aggressive, very violent, because you were likely to be eaten otherwise. That aggression helped. And it's pointless to say uh, uh, aggression is bad and we ought to take, take it out of humans, you can take it out of humans. I think, by the way, that the, the almost hypnotic appeal of uh, a football to males is an ancient echo of the hunting party going out and killing other animals. It's called a pig skin. Um, <laughs> you, you kick it, you throw it, you catch it, you beat up each other to get at it. Um, I think there are echoes of that past which explain things that otherwise are deeply mysterious about us, one of which is male fascination for uh, violent team sports. All right, let me go up to the balcony person. Well, um, I'd like to go back to the Gibbons Carl alluded to them earlier about the wonderful arias, the duets that they sing to each other together. Um, gibbons are interesting because while many of these primates, all of these primates have ways of marking territory, usually it's, sometimes it's urinating, sometimes it's running around and being really fierce, sometimes it's menacing. The gibbons do it through song. And uh, they're a very, almost an operatic uh, kind of uh, bunch of primates. And um, they, sing, they sing power transfer arias. The, the alpha gibbon is the one whose song is uh, sort of the, the lead, he's the lead singer, really, of, of his group. And, uh, and after a while, when he gets too old to be, to be the alpha, we imagine these, the, the wonderful sort of almost, you can imagine Verdi writing a, a power transfer aria for a gibbon. They also have their monogamous, as Carl mentioned, and in fact, when, uh, when one dies, the other one never sings again. 
which uh, struck me as probably very projective and anthropomorphic, but I couldn't help it. It just made me feel as if this was something about, about love, certainly about commitment, no, no two ways about that. What we learned is that we have a real legacy, certainly the, the macaques and their unwillingness to shock the others. That's not just ethics. That must be fellow feeling. That must be compassion. That must be an ability to, to relate, to know what, what pain is and not to want to inflict it on another. And, uh, and of course, also in parenting, so much of parenting among the primates is cooperative. And uh, as you get into the primates and then into humans, the, uh, the, the infancy of a species becomes longer, requiring much more effort. There are absolutely, to me, heart-rending stories of uh, the kind of inevitable violence in many of these primate troops where an infant will be dashed on the rocks by an angry male, suddenly loses his temper and destroys the infant. That mother will carry that infant, sometimes for days or weeks, clutching it to her. Now she knows, she must know that it's, it's dead. She knows the difference between dead and alive. But that attachment, that is something that all of us can relate to. So because there is not an articulate language that we share yet, we can say that much of this is projective and probably against the rules in science, and yet it's an irresistible conclusion that these primates know something of what we call love. Okay. I mean, yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes, ma'am. The question has to do with psychic ability. Psychic means not that I might know what Annie is about to say because we've lived together for so long and we love each other a lot and we anticipate each other's... That's not psychic, right? That's, that's just people knowing each other. Psychic is something different. Extrasensory perception, uh, so on. As Every other area of human existence, whether you believe in it or not, depends on the quality of the evidence for it. I spent a fair amount of time looking at the quality of the evidence, and I find that the evidence is extremely poor for any kind of psychic ability in humans, never mind chimpanzees. We are liable to self-deception. We, we remember the hits and forget the misses. We tend not to have a strong sense of the role of statistics. We tend to exaggerate because stories that tell us about psychic performance are better stories than stories that tell us that they don't exist. Um, and I, I can go into, into detail but uh, there has never been a controlled scientific experiment in all the years we've heard about psychic phenomena which demonstrate its existence. Not once. It's very much like UFOs. If somebody comes up with very good controlled repeatable experiments, I'm for it. It makes for a more interesting universe. But until then, I say we have to be very skeptical. If we're not skeptical, then we're setups for the next con man who comes who comes along. 
Skepticism, just as in the buying of a, new, of a used car. Right over here. Skepticism is essential for our survival. Yes, sir. I, I was going to ask the gentleman first, since I caught his eye first, and then I'll have follow-up with you right after that. Thank you. I'm not opposed to considering the question, but I, I want the findings to be applied scientifically and fairly, not just with our prejudices and, and, and distorted by, by, by racism, but that, that study would have to include, as we were saying earlier, the Joint Chiefs, for instance, or it would have to include, uh, see, that's, that's always been the problem, and that is, that's why the idea of of making science accessible to absolutely everyone in a democratic society is so key. We live in a highly technical and scientific society, and yet only the tiniest fraction among us have even understand the language of science and technology. This is a recipe for disaster. And so when we talk about the connections between uh, perhaps a genetic connection with violence, we have to be willing to apply it completely to the whole scene, and not just selectively, as it always has been in the past, to those among us who are the poorest and who don't have scientists and advocates to speak up on our behalf. See, I, I, just, I know you're in a hurry to move on, but let me, just, let me just agree with Annie. I would, before that conference, if it, in addition to worrying about genetic aspects of criminality in the inner cities, it worried about genetic aspects of hierarchy in the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, and genetic aspects, and genetic aspects, as Annie says, at the Joint Chiefs of Staff and in the military hierarchies and, and in, in the, the Central and Intelligence and Agency and Savings right. and Loan Industry. Right. And so right. that would be a that that's would be right. an excellent conference. I'd be for that. But when it's only limited to the poorest and least powerful people in the society, oh, they got something genetically wrong with them, the racism is manifest. Any follow-up, sir? I could, but I won't. Um, <laughs> the, 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 because the quality of the data is very poor. Because people tend not to think in these terms. People tend to think, whatever country I've been born in, that country is really great. My fatherland, my motherland. Patriotism, from the Greek word for father. It's all familyized, parentalized, made highly emotional, and then people get really mad. What, you think some other country does it better? I think it's much better for us to think of this as a scientific experimental question and even think about different experimental societies. I don't say this is an easy job, but the way we've been doing it is very unscientific and unproductive. Yes, sir.
Whoa. You go first, Carl. No, 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 no. <laughs> After you. No, darling. <laughs> no, please. Well, uh, this, you know, the, the family values, this whole family values discussion struck me very much as the difference between, and this is m actually a little more clear cut in this election than usual, I think, the difference between pretending, wanting to say, let's pretend that things were the way they never were and that human beings are nothing like they really are. And wouldn't everything be a lot nicer if we did this? W then it would solve all our problems. Saying this when our infrastructure is crumbling, when our public education system, which was once really pretty good, is, um, is falling apart, when uh, healthcare, our everything, our roads, our, our place in the world economy, all of these things are at terrible risk. And what does, what does Bush say? He says, well, and the people who support him, well, if we pretend that we're not sexual, and if we get women back where they once were, and if all of this happens, then it'll be fine, which of course, I'm happy to say, I think most people don't buy, and, and in fact, it's backfired for them. For me, if you're asking, are you asking how we're gonna vote, who we'd vote for? <laughs> Because uh, I think in this case, and I'm, I'm, it's, <laughs> it's not easy, but I think we have to vote for the Democrats because I think we have to. Because, just because, wait, wait, I want to say one thing, is that the slide that we've been on for the last 12 years has really, I think, begun to pick up a pace. And uh, go ahead. Well, that, that's you. why I assume they've written the book, that's why they're here tonight, and that's why uh, they'll be speaking on different shows around the country. Let me just, uh, yes, sir, three or four more, and, and I know that we got a, um, a lot of you have questions. If you'll make them short, maybe the answers will be short, <laughs> and maybe we'll get them. No telling. No chance. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. More than people in who've really been waiting. Yes, sir. We do go all the way back to the origin of life. In fact, we go be back before the origin of life to the formation of the solar system. And one thing that surprised me was that the whole notion of I and thou, of me and you, goes back to the, to the, one, the first one-celled organisms who are, have to be deciding, now, me I don't eat, you I do eat. And at that moment, there's a kind of consciousness that arises as if, you know, it, it always struck me that it seemed to me that life was, you know, started four and a half billion years ago, and it's sort of rolling along really slow, really dull, you know, not much happening. And then after billions of years, suddenly consciousness. No, that consciousness is very, very ancient, and it starts all the way back. And yes, to answer your question, oh, we have lots about blue, male blue herons and um, all kinds of other creatures. Yes, uh, very different uh, social structures in many different, many cases, yeah.
I'm so glad you said. I'm You'll really repeat, glad. Repeat the yeah, question. What a wonderful. You asked. Yeah. You said. You were restating what we were saying, that and what I had said about if you see yourself as separate from the rest of the fabric of nature, if you separate creation is a kind of, to me, a pernicious doctrine because it says it's okay to really mess around and to dominate and to misuse the rest of nature because it's ours to do with as we please. I'm so glad you said that because recently, Carl and I, for the last four years, have been working with religious leaders and scientists to try to create a kind of new coalition in support of the environment, in protection of the environment. And absolutely, of course you're right. What we've encountered, people with very diametrically different points of view from mine, who clearly are every bit as committed and every bit as inspired in wanting to, to try to preserve the environment. And many of them say that they see it as preserving creation, God's creation. The uh, Baptist fundamentalists said to us, God commands us to preserve his creation. So it's a very different perspective. And what we like to say is, you don't have to agree on how creation got here in order to be willing to defend it and to preserve it. So yes. Uh, yes, sir. Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, we don't know yet. We have yes. nothing, nothing we, we can say uh, with any certainty. Uh, is going to, to, to be a television project, but who knows? Yes, sir. Let me uh, try to be more explicit. First, repeat the question. You get repeat yes. The questioner, who is still on his feet as an indication of his passion on this subject. <laughs> <laughs> the questioner is unhappy at my response on UFOs and psychic phenomena and considers that I've been too lighthearted in dismissing it and uh, wants to know what am I talking about when I say there's not a lot of hard evidence? Um, he knows at least of some soft evidence. Here's what I mean by hard evidence. Let's take the UFO case. There are people, thousands of people, who claim to have been abducted by UFOs, actually taken on the spaceship and flown away and had unconventional medical examinations and sexual things done to them by aliens the, the, the idea, by the way, of, of a sufficient genetic similarity between a being evolved on another planet and us to justify sex is about as likely as, as, a, as a man and a petunia having an affair. <laughs> but this is, this is just an a priori statement. This is not on the level of evidence. Where, how about a page from the captain's logbook? How about a piece of a metal, an alien alloy, which in our metallurgical laboratories people say, boy, I never saw anything like this. How about a small electronic device that no one on earth has ever, has ever uh, invented? How about a photograph that's not a fake, 
of a UFO. How about, how, how about information from the extraterrestrials about science or mathematics that we don't have and that 10, 20 years later we discover? How about asking the extraterrestrials, would you please provide a short summary of <laughs> the proof of Fermat's last theorem? Never happened. Nothing in the realm of hard evidence. It's all anecdotes. And I would remind you, right. I would remind you that... Hold on, hold on, sir, one second. I, I would remind you that anecdotal stories like this were once rampant about apparitions of saints and virgins and elves and fairies. And where did all them go? Uh, all right. No, stop, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> One quick response, sir. What did you want to follow up and say, real quick? All right, that's another subject, another night. Not now, not I, here. I, I thought I did. Okay, well, I did too. And you need to. No, just to this? say about that. I, I think it's a perfectly good question because this is very widespread. An enormous number of people have come forward to claim that this has happened to them, and I would point out that we are fast approaching the millennium. And not only that, but I think. In my lifetime, I've never seen so much uneasiness and so much fear about the future as there is right now. And I think that this is another manifestation of that. This is a way of saying, maybe there's someone out there who will be in control, who will rescue us from our plight. And I think that's what this is about. It's a kind of quasi-religious thing. Okay. That there's something psychological to be explained, you're absolutely right. That the stories are valid, I think there's no evidence for. Yes, here. Yes, ma'am. Um, well, you can see alternatives even among humans. Wait, I, I don't. Uh, oh, I, oh, yeah, I, yes. Of course. Let me repeat the question. The, the, the uh, I beg your pardon. The questioner says, "Okay, she's interested in in the application of these ideas to social planning um, on dominance hierarchies. We say we see it in in other species." do we see the alternatives to dominance hierarchies? Is that a fair rendition of your question? Semi-fair. Yeah, <laughs> as much as we have time for. <laughs> the best we can uh, hope for. Yeah. Do, do you want to? No, 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 I don't. So I would, say, <laughs> I would say, yes, of course. We do see many species in which the females tell the males what to do rather than, than the other way around. We see a number of species in which the two sexes are, are evenly matched. We see uh, species in which there is not dominance hierarchies, but note that dominance hierarchies serve a purpose, not necessarily in our present global industrial civilization, but back when we and our ancestors were in small groups of a few dozen. There's a reason why dominance hierarchies are so, are so prevalent and why men crave for groups of a few dozen males off fighting. Uh, there's a reason for it. But even among humans, as I try to mention about some of the hunter-gatherer societies, 
there are societies which go out of their way to be democratic, to not have a leader, to not have a political structure, to have everything done by uh, consensus. And that also is part of humans, and that's something we're talking about in the follow-on to this book. This is the last question uh, right here. Ooh, Can I take that, Carl? question. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. That's a great one. The questioner says, would you please update the evidence for water on Mars, Io, and Europa, and uh, what are the implications of this evidence for life? Thank you. It's an excellent question. Uh, Io and Europa are two moons of Jupiter that are of uh, substantial size. Mars is the next outermost planet. Uh, to the Earth. Let me, in the interest of time, not, not uh, say much about EO and Europa. That's mainly speculative. In the case of Mars, very interesting recent uh, uh, evidence. Briefly, it goes like this. You look at the Martian landforms, and you see clear evidence for bodies of water in ancient times. There are hundreds of ancient river valleys. There is new evidence for lakes. There is a, I find, almost compelling argument for oceans on ancient Mars. I mean, geological evidence, shorelines. Um, and yet Mars today cannot have any liquid water. The pressures and temperatures are both too low. Clearly, there was a time early in Martian history when the conditions were much more Earth-like than they are today. Higher atmospheric pressure, higher temperatures, abundant liquid water. And we know when that time was from the cratering statistics. We can date roughly when, when Mars was wet. And it's something like four billion years ago. Now, four billion years ago is when the origin of life happened on the Earth. It's exactly the same time. And if the origin of life could happen fast, as soon as the Earth had abundant liquid water, why couldn't it happen on Mars, the neighboring planet, when it had abundant liquid water? And so this has been a real shot in the arm for people who think that maybe not present life, but at least fossil forms of life, remnants of life, are there on Mars, and it's a, an additional romantic lure or call for follow-on expeditions to Mars. I, I must end this. I must say that, uh, before I do, that, that uh, the book, again, is uh, Carl Sagan and Andrew Ian's Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, A Search for Who We Are. As many of you know, uh, Carl Sagan is a David Duncan Professor of Astronomy and Space Sciences and director at Cornell and director of the Laboratory for Planetary Studies. And, and Anne is uh, secretary of the Federation of American Scientists and a novelist and a television writer and a producer. And get this, she was the creative director of the interstellar record on the two Voyager spacecrafts. I know you've got a 1,000 questions, and we could take a lot more time. But if, because of a kind of contract we have with people, in a sense, who come here, um, we're supposed to end at 9. They, will, uh, I think, will be signing some books. Is that correct? And you'll have an opportunity then to see them I thank you. Please join me in thanking them for a wonderful evening. And thanks to Charlie for coming, sore thumb and all. 
For more information on 92nd Street Y and all of our programs, please visit us on the web at 92y.org. This program is copyright 1992 by 92nd Street Y.